This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.11, Under Pressure, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I am excited to get back to normal Gundam episodes where nothing bad happens to anybody. And I'm Nina, shocked that an episode of Zeta has finally given me the warm fuzzies, even if only for a moment. Mobile Soup Breakdown is made possible by the support of 150 patrons. Woo! As of right before we recorded. <laughs> Thank you all. And special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Abnormal Mapping, Nori, Robert C., and James O. If you'd like to support Mobile Soup Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. And special thanks go out this week to some of our listeners on Instagram. The Z Giorno, Okina Oka Gunpla, Thick Gunplas Only, Julia Does A Lot, T-Builds, Ink Designer, Toby the Mecha Swede, Gun Bear Dam, Vlad A. Goof, and d Wright 2 who responded to our request for Tomino Butler names by pointing out that there actually was a butler back in Tomino's 1978 series Invincible Steel Man Daitarn 3, and that butler's name was Garrison Tokida. It's alright. It's not the Tominoist, Tominoist, Tominoist of <laughs> names. Well, it was pretty early in his career. He hadn't run out of name ideas yet. I would also like to thank Twitter listeners Trucy True, Kay Villa, Taliarchus, Tom Suio Esquire, and Chito Bandito, who somehow slipped through my net last week. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 10, Reunion, or Saikai. If you remember, Saikai has been used in an episode title before, back in First Gundam Episode 13, Saikai Hahayo when it was used for Amuro's reunion with his mother. Wasn't it also used for Saikai Shaposeira? It was. Tomino likes to use the word Saikai a lot. It means reunion. Meeting again. Our research this week covers the city of Amman, language notes, and missile countermeasures. But first, we have the Titans News Network to remind you what happened last week. Final victory over Ayug on the moon? It's closer than you might think. Operating on secret intelligence, elite Titans special forces under the command of Lieutenant Kakrakon Kakuler have located the Ayug's secret base in the lunar city Amman. 
Even as we speak, units attached to the Titan's Alexandria Task Force under Lieutenant Commander Donninghan are preparing for a major assault on the Amman base. Experts believe that the destruction of the Ayug secret base will spell the end of the rebel movement once and for all. The staff at TNN wish these noble heroes good luck and godspeed. This battle will also see the first combat deployment of a new Titan's mobile suit, codenamed Marasai. A high-performance machine developed by Anaheim Electronics, the Marasai is superior to the AUG's antiquated Jim 2 and Reek Dius mobile suits in every way. And it's not bad looking either. Watch out, parents, because experts are already predicting that Marasai models from TTC, the Titan's toy company, will be the hot toy this Christmas season. You can pre-order yours today, and the designers are working around the clock to have them on store shelves by the time the attack on Amon begins. Following reports that the AU secret headquarters may be located within a McDaniels restaurant, outraged Earthnoids on MyEarth, the social networking site for Earthnoids, have started participating in the hashtag Smashburger protest, where they film themselves buying McDaniels burgers, throwing them on the ground, and stomping on them. I can't imagine a more heroic display of Earthnoid solidarity. With the final eradication of Ayug at hand, Titan's captain and all-around swell fellow Bascom has warned citizens to be on alert for Ayug sympathizers posing as members of the regular Federation forces. Stay vigilant and keep an ear out for any of these common Ayug code phrases. What good is an army that only recruits people born on Earth? Spacenoid writes. What would Quattro do? You never know when I might end up at the Vatican. And help, help, I'm being repressed. Make sure to report any signs of disloyalty to the Titan's tip line right away. And remember, this is TNN, and victory is at hand. And now the recap for Reunion. Amon bustles as workers rush to repair the damage done by Kakrakon's attack. In his room, Camille continues to work on Haro, who is calling him Amaro again. Camille is worried about his own memory. He seems to be forgetting even things that happened recently, just before he left home. Emma stops by to tell him they've begun work on the Mark II's new flying armor, and he goes with her to observe the work. Astonaji explains it to them. He's actually incorporated many of the ideas from Camille's Zeta Gundam design. It needs to be completed as soon as possible, because within 24 hours, they will be entering Earth's atmosphere and attacking Jabiro. Surprised to hear that they will be attacking the Titan's rear base directly, Emma goes to discuss the operation with Quattro. She raises all the same objections that Quattro did when he met with Wang Li and the other financiers. An attack on Jabiro will pollute the Earth, and wouldn't it be better to attack the main Titan's base on Grips? But Quattro, the good soldier, repeats his commander's talking points in favor of the plan. Still, Emma can tell he isn't truly in favor of this course of action. Before leaving, Quattro tells her there's a chance that the remnants of Xeon will ally themselves with the Titans, a possibility which must be prevented. That, at least, he seems to agree with. As soon as the Argama readies to leave the moon, the Alexandria launches an attack. Jared and Kakrakon are testing new mobile suits, Marasize, received from Anaheim Electronics, and the Alexandria itself launches missiles at Amman, preventing the Argama's departure. Ayug's mobile suits launch, supported by Nemo's and small industrial mobile suits everyone seems to call Chibi Mobiru. 
and Camille manages to intercept an incoming missile barrage. He and Jared pursue each other over the surface of the moon, while Emma and the other mobile suits defend the Argama from Kakrakon and his unit. With the fighting so close, the Argama no longer has to worry about missile strikes and can finally take off. Kakrakon shifts his attention to Camille, who has been drawn away from the rest of the Aeug ships and mobile suits. He manages to pin the Mark II down, but is forced back by a blast from a beam weapon. It's Wang Li, in one of the small industrial mobile suits. But his suit won't have sufficient energy to fire the beam weapon again anytime soon, and now he is exposed, with Kakrakon bearing down on him. Backup arrives in the form of Quattro. Camille wants to keep fighting Jared and Kakrakon, but Quattro is there to order him back to the battle lines. The Argama has left, and they need to join it. What about Amon? Camille asks. But Wang Li tells him to focus on his mission. Amon can defend itself. As they leave, the missile strikes resume, and Amon seems to disappear in flashes of light and clouds of wreckage. Preparations are underway for the attack on Jaburo, but Beckoner wants to be sure they are no longer being pursued by the Alexandria before they head to the rendezvous point. On their way, they encounter another ship, the atmospheric shuttle Temptation, captained by none other than Bright Noah. Quattro and Camille go out in their mobile suits to intercept, but encounter a lone mobile armor, one none of them have ever seen before. It zips past them, dodging their attacks before attacking the Temptation and flying away as suddenly as it appeared. Quattro and Camille escort the Temptation back to the Argama. It is full of refugees from various colonies, including Green Noah One. While Quattro is introducing Camille to Bright, who should launch herself at them but Camille's friend, Fa. She hugs Camille close, crying into his shoulder, I thought I'd never see you again. Fa's parents were captured by Basque because they knew Camille, and Bright saved Fa by getting her away before she could be captured too. Camille holds Fa while she cries, furious all over again at the Titans and Basque. I don't want to be mean to this episode, but this is kind of a nothing of an episode. There's no real point to it. It's just a bunch of stuff that happens all sewn together because it's necessary to bridge us from one part of the story to the next to get us off the moon and into space and to get Bright and Fa onto the Argama. It doesn't feel like there's any important narrative through line. There are no real major explorations of any themes. It's just some stuff that happens. Yeah, when I was writing the recap for this episode, it was my shortest recap so far <laughs> for Zeta. Part of that is because there's a lot of combat, and combat is just kind of hard to describe in a compelling way. But there's also just not that much that happens. It's a little bit like, this is a weird metaphor, but bear with me for a second. You're at a bowling alley. <laughs> this episode is setting up all of the pins. We've got a bunch of ships from Ayuk bases on the moon getting ready for the Jabro invasion. We've got the new mobile suits, the Nemo and the Marasai. We've got the flying armor. We encountered the mysterious mobile armor out in space with its mysterious pilot with his beautiful flowing purple hair. And we get Bright and Fa reintroduced into the story. So the pins are there, but nothing happens with them. The actual bowling is going to happen in a future episode. Funny thing, though, I did not find this episode boring, but most of what I found interesting has very little to do with the events of the episode and a lot to do with what they imply about the world mm. or about 
decisions made by the people making the show. So for somebody like you, who's really interested in trying to figure out the larger world that Zeta keeps hinting at, this is a great episode. I think so, although it doesn't answer most of the questions that I had. But they're interesting to think about. For instance, there's that sort of odd conversation that the Federation officer has with Jamaican about the Sichuan, the ship, mm-hmm. which took us a couple of times listening to it to pick apart exactly what we think is happening there. Because this Federation officer shows up and says the Sichuan left under orders from Grips. We know that's not true. Jamaican knows that's not true. (laughs) Does the Federation officer know that's not true? That we don't know. But if she did, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for her to come to Jamaican of all people and be like, I need you to tell me where the ship went. I don't know. I think she would be obliged to pretend that she didn't know where it went regardless. Like this is the cover story that the Federation forces at Granada have decided to go with. And so whether she's in on it or not, she does have to play along. That's fair. Jamaican goes along with it because it would look really bad for the Titans to have had a ship stolen by Ayug with cooperation from various Federation soldiers. And so they need to maintain this fig leaf (laughs) of, oh, it just left on a secret mission. Because if he calls the bluff here, then the Titans force that's with him, which is not very large, is going to have to go up against the Federation of Granada, right? If he makes this a fight, he's going to have to fight them. And while he does have enough forces to attack Amon and commit some casual war crimes there, it's clear that he does not have the forces to take on the whole city of Granada, which is much, much larger and a very significant base. Speaking of Amon, we open with a bunch of repairs to the area that was attacked last time, which is a specific underground hangar which seems to be slightly outside of Amon. It's not in the city proper. So all of these cities are built into lunar craters, and it looks like the dock is built into the wall of the crater. So it's both underground, but also above the city. It's a weird kind of layout. My first question on watching all of these repairs happen was, does the civilian population in Amon know that there was this attack that happened? Are they on alert now preparing for a potential follow-up attack? Do they have no idea and it's been kept quiet somehow or it's distant enough or the way it's set up, they they didn't hear, feel, or notice in any way <laughs> that this attack happened? You know, and we never see the inside of Amon again, so we don't know. And then later, we have Wong Li's appearance Because we can never just be allowed to hate someone. (laughs) And he saves Camille. And he doesn't just save Camille. Because you have to think about the fact that he's in this, what they call chibi mobile. Uh, It's like a small industrial or mining mobile suit. It's tiny. It comes up to the knee of a regular mobile suit. It's more like an exoskeleton, really, than a mobile suit. He's got a beam weapon hooked up to it that he can fire once and then has to wait (laughs) minutes to have enough power to fire it again. He's out in the open. He's just given away his position and has no weapons. (laughs) He is defenseless. He is essentially either gambling that he can get away or willingly sacrificing himself for Camille. Wong gets the Slager treatment here. 
He gets to do the good thing that complicates the bad thing. And it doesn't make up for it, right? This doesn't make Wong good. Not that any adult in Gundam is ever really good. It gives us more to think about with him. And it probably complicates things for Camille. It really backs up what Emma said, frankly, that Wong Lee is not just a, a bully who likes tormenting people. He truly thinks that his actions are for Camille's own good. He truly wants to make sure Camille survives to be part of the like free and independent colonies. Maybe. <laughs> I, I mean, again, I don't think that justifies his behavior. Plenty of truly horrific acts have been committed <laughs> by people who thought they were doing what was for the best. I just think that while Wong does save Camille's life here, it could just be part of the defense of Amon. It's not necessarily mm. because he thinks Camille needs to live. See, I don't think so, because shortly after, Camille asks, what about Amon? When Quattro is telling him, we need to go catch up with the Argama, we have to go. And Wang Li says, don't worry, we've got our industrial mobile suits, we can defend Amon, stick to your mission. And immediately afterwards, Amon gets blown to smithereens by the Alexandria. Which is a thing that we've seen Camille be able to do something about. We see him use... He has a kind of missile defense weapon of some kind. It's some kind of like scattering warhead that he fires from his bazooka. There's no indication that the little industrial mining suits have that. There's no indication that Amon as a place has it. We've already seen it get hit once. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you were prioritizing Amon, he would want them to stick around long enough to fight off the Alexandria. I guess I didn't mean that he was prioritizing the defense of Amon over everything. I was just saying that he's in battle defending Amon. An enemy is attacking an ally. Of course, he's going to shoot at the enemy to defend the ally. That there's nothing necessarily special about Camille. Perhaps not. He might have done that for any mobile suit pilot. We can't really know. <laughs> he doesn't say anything to acknowledge that it's Camille. He doesn't say, hey, brat. You'd better be grateful that I saved your life. I don't think he would say that if he knew it was Camille, but I'm not like I'm afraid that in my in my moments, I'm going to sound like I'm defending him or trying to like justify <laughs> his actions. And I'm not even if he did this not knowing it was Camille, that still means he's risking his own life when we thought he was just the money guy lording it over everybody because he's financing Ayug. When actually his life is also on the line. He is also out there risking himself for the cause. I will admit, of the many criticisms I have about Wong Lee, cowardice is not one of them. Also worth noting, Camille takes a moment to be concerned about Aman. Quattro's total non-reaction <laughs> to what happens is classic Quattro. Quattro had one reaction during that fight when he spots the Titan's scout and he goes, oh, there's an enemy. <laughs> His face lights up. He gets really excited to go kill that guy. He gets a very dramatic stabby action on that guy. Mm -hmm. He puts the, the hilt of his beam saber against the torso of the mobile suit and then clicks it on. So the blade like shoots through yep. and then it, yeah. 
And then he flies away and it explodes in the background. Yep. It's very dramatic. It's very like walking away from the explosion behind you kind yeah. of shot. Devotees of obscure mobile suits in Gundam lore will have recognized that that was a recon Zaku from the Mobile Suit Variations series of uh, Gunpla and Art that came out between First Gundam and Zeta. It's the Zaku with the cameras in its shoulders. Finally, and we get some hints about this when Fa shows up and starts talking to Camille. What is the situation in some of the other colonies that we have an entire transport full of refugees yeah. who, are, who are hoping they can find Ayug before they find Titans? Because while it's possible that Bright basically kidnapped a whole ship full of people <laughs> who thought that they were just going to Earth or just going to some colony, I kind of doubt it. Yeah. Especially since Fa was there, this feels like these are political refugees. And I get the impression that the shuttle was already in distress before Ayug and that mysterious mobile armor showed up. Mm -hmm. Like the shuttle had maybe left without adequate fuel or without a flight plan. Or had been damaged because they'd had to run away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see some space debris in this area. It's possible that they got hit by a meteor or something. Well, and they almost get hit again. So, yeah. Imagine the crackdowns that are probably happening that this whole ship full of people were like, yeah, let's make a risky escape <laughs> to try to meet up with Ayug mm -hmm. because we need off this colony or these colonies if they stopped it more than one place. Right. When they're checking everybody in, they say, okay, we just need to verify who you are. Like, we'll need your name and your colony of residence, which kind of implies they're not all from the same place. Yeah. If Fa's parents, who just know Camille, were arrested, who else in Camille's life has been arrested? Well, the whole Fa thing feels more narrative necessity than logic to me. Because if you were Basque, would you really take your criminal's friend's parents before you would take the friend? Like, if you wanted to put... Well, she says Bright saved her, so probably she was also arrested or was going to be arrested. And by luck, by happenstance, she managed to make it out. Possible. And arresting all known associates of somebody is mm -hmm. absolutely a thing that real secret police agencies have done in the real world. I don't doubt that. It just felt weird to me. It, it felt like a narrative device to both give Fa an opportunity to reunite with Camille and also remove her parents from the picture. So that she has a lot more independence and agency. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe it's both. I don't know. It struck me as odd. I mean, do you, unlike Camille, think that that is something Basque would not do? No, I think Basque would absolutely. I guess I just think, like, the Titans are not incompetent. <laughs> the fact that they managed to catch her parents but not Fa feels a little sloppy. <laughs> You say that the Titans are not incompetent, but remember when one of them crashed a mobile suit into their own base, which allowed Camille to escape from military detention? Yeah, but Jared's a special case. <laughs> <laughs> How many Jareds are in the Titans, Nina? That's a good question. How many Jareds can they afford? <laughs> um, I mean, you may be right. My reaction in the moment of watching the episode was like, okay, I get it. They needed Fa to be here without her parents. I mean, you were primed for that, though, because from the moment the temptation showed up, you were like, 
did they just run into each other? How did this? This is the hugest coincidence. Yeah. And it is. Something something ex machina. Something something new type stuff. Speaking of Fa, perhaps this is the right moment to check in with Camille. To all appearances, Camille seems to be doing better. He seems to be adjusting. He's participating more in the life of the ship. He has camaraderie with his fellow pilots. They like and respect him. More so with Roberto and Apoli. Yes. Than with Emma, who is still very much in a disciplinarian kind of mold. She also rarely fights with him. Like when when they go out from Amman, she is supposed to be sort of holding back and protecting the area near the Argama. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's Quattro, Camille, Apoli, Roberto who are out there in it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not he's never really fought alongside Emma in the way that he's fought alongside Roberto and Apoli. That is absolutely true. But it's true. She's the one who's still kind of like, shouldn't you just get used to military life? Like, wouldn't it be better? And when to all appearances, it seems like he has. Yeah. Like he doesn't need that reminder at the moment. She's like, she's criticizing his attitude more than his actual behavior. And she's the one who threatens him with another beating. A correction. He also appears to be working with Astonaji to some degree because Astonaji mentions the... uh, Flying armor that they are working on is based off of some of the Zeta Gundam designs that Camille had been working on, which Camille saved to a disc and took out of the computer. <laughs> so there wouldn't have been any way for Astonaji to reference those designs without cooperation from Camille, I don't think. Mm-hmm. They've got a nice like buddy scientist thing going oh, on. I love that scene when they've been looking at the flying armor He mentions the attack on Jaburo, and Emma books it out the door to go talk to Quattro. Mm -hmm. And Camille and Astonaji are just like pouring over the computer screen. The new designs and the, yeah. I think every nerdy listener we have, which is probably 100% of our (laughs) listeners, can relate to this feeling of like you and a buddy or a couple of friends just like zoned in on a computer screen looking at the cool new thing. Looking at the video game or the gunpla or the program or whatever. And his reunion with Fa is very touching. You have to pay attention to Camille's eyes. All of his emotion is in his (laughs) eyes through this scene. And he runs from surprise to affection to surprise some more (laughs) to anger. But he at no point does he try to distance himself from her or to get her to stop being upset. It's not like, whoa, you need to calm down. It's like, oh my God, my friend is hurting. Yeah, he actively, he pulls her closer. Right, they hold each other. She's crying into his shoulder. At one point, he like closes his eyes and leans his face toward her hair. Like He sort of nuzzles her for a second. While she's crying and telling him about what happened to her parents. He notices that the entirety of the crew that's down there is watching them and he does look a little self-conscious for a moment. Yeah, there's a flash of that. But that all gets left behind by the other feelings. And this was very unexpected, given the way that he acts toward Fa in episode one, <laughs> <laughs> which feels sort of indifferent. Like he doesn't really care whether she's there with him or not. This moment feels... I, I was surprised and touched. When the episode opens... 
he's playing around with Haro's memory and he remembers some things from his life on Green Noah One. And he has a comment here that we'll have to talk about in a second where he mentions that he's having memory problems, which is ominous. But the two things he flashes back to in this scene are him getting hit, getting corrected by the captain of his karate club, which he's probably thinking about because of the very similar thing that happened to him in the previous episode. But then he also thinks about Fa, flashes back to running through Green Noah One with Fa. So that's, that's what home is for him. Home is these two competing feelings of like, violence and discipline and competition in a very masculine world versus his friend versus Fa. And Fa represents the other side of that. Someone who actually likes him and cares about him and doesn't hit him all the time. I had an entirely different interpretation of his moment of thinking about things that he remembers that are fading from his memory, which is that he's remembering his last day before he left. Mm. He's remembering the moments before his life changed completely and irrevocably. Hmm. <laughs> Those were the last normal things he did. Yep. That was the last. It was, in a lot of ways, the end of his childhood. Hmm. Uh, and that he's remembering his old life, the last parts of his old life. Remembering, but also forgetting them. Yeah. There's two things this could be, and they are often related. <laughs> so uh, one is that trauma often messes with people's memories. Two is that traumatic brain injuries can mess with your memory. And this doesn't necessarily just mean getting hit in the head. Uh, every time he's in the Mark II and an explosion happens nearby or the Mark II gets hit and he gets like rattled around inside it, that also causes brain trauma. <laughs> so Camille has experienced a lot of both of these things recently. It's not a surprise that he is having memory problems but it is concerning. In addition to the camaraderie that Camille feels with the other pilots, he's also getting praised. He's getting better at fighting. He is. But the captain of the ship, Beckner, makes a point of calling down to the pilot's ready room to praise Camille specifically for his good job during the fight. So does Emma. This is the other side of the beatings. This is the reward, the treat when you do well, when you do what is expected of you. Well, and Roberto says, oh, I'll cover for you when Camille wants to go work on Haro some more instead of staying on duty. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm actually really curious about how Roberto and Apoli would feel about Camille's situation if they knew all of the details instead of being lied to about it by Quattro, etc. Because... They don't seem to have the same respect for military regulations that, say, Emma does. Yeah, they're not as stuffy. Because Camille has just received orders to stay on duty for a while. Mm -hmm. And he decides to leave and go check on Haro. And Emma is like, but Camille, your orders. And Apoli and Roberto are like, whatever, the kid did good. Let him take a break. I credit a lot of that to Emma being a pretty... Uh, recently made soldier, mm -hmm. if you want to put it that way. And Roberto and Apoli are both veterans of the one-year war. Yeah. They've been doing this a long time. They have less to prove. I mean, Emma's a bit of a martinet. She's a bit obsessed with the rules and the regulations and doing everything by the book, even when it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And Roberto and Apoli have been in this game for a long time. They survived the one-year war. 
they have a sense for when things actually matter. They also managed to survive. This this is a bit of deep lore on them, but they managed to survive being Shar's wingmen during oh. the One Year War, which is like <laughs> that has like a ninety nine point nine percent lethality rate. Oh, now I'm scared for them. <laughs> Why did you tell me that? <laughs> it's fine, Nina. They're not Shar's wingmen anymore. Now they're Quattro's wingmen. That's completely different. Oh God, she's crying. <laughs> I love the moment when. They call him new type again because they're enjoying teasing him about that. And Camille, rather than getting upset, just says, hey, guys, I know it's just a joke, but please don't call me that. And they stop. Oh, my gosh. Mutual <laughs> respect. <laughs> Communication. This is like that time when Haro called him Camille. That one time. It's <laughs> back to calling him Amaro again. Haro also having memory troubles, probably from all those times he got shot. It is interesting that Camille seems to be developing an obsession with what he assumes is a hidden information about the one-year war that's like hidden in Haro, that something about the one-year war is going to break this thing wide open. <laughs> I interpret that as Camille being able to tell that everybody around him, especially the adults, are all still obsessed with the one-year war, that all of this is an echo of it, an afterimage. But Camille was a kid. He was 10 years old when the one-year war happened. He doesn't really remember it or understand it. And so he's trying to figure out what it was about that war that has bound everyone even to this day. And of course, everyone keeps looking to him and being like, you're going to be Amuro. You're going to be the guy. You're going to be just like him. And you've, you've got the Gundam Mark II. And what we are insisting is a Haro Mark II. Like, you're the second coming of this guy. But Camille doesn't know anything about it. I'm with you on all of that, except why does he think that understanding that is somehow going to change the war now? When we were talking about Camille in the last episode, especially when we were talking about his uh, self-diagnosis as autistic, one of the things we came back to is that Camille does have trouble figuring out intuitively what is expected of him by other people. Mm. He's trying to figure out what his role is, and when he messes up, he gets punished brutally for it. And when he succeeds, he gets rewarded. So you're saying this is Camille's version of when Amaro runs a bajillion simulations to try to prepare for every eventuality in every fight? Yeah, very similar. Camille is trying to figure out what his role is supposed to be. If he's supposed to be the second coming of Amaro, what does that mean? And Haro, if this is the original Haro, is the only person here so far who could tell him what Amuro was really like. Haro would tell him, oh, well, his average heart rate was. <laughs> and there were troubles with his brain waves. He was only sometimes Genki. <laughs> we get some cool new mobile suits. They are cool, aren't they? The Marasai and the Nemo. And the mysterious mobile armor at the end. More than any other element of the design of these mobile suits, I want to talk about the colors because it's very interesting from a sort of production design perspective. Now that Quattro's mobile suit is gold, other people can be red. <laughs> Before, it was legit confusing when there were other red mobile suits because we expect red to be Shaquatro when it, it gets... 
all discombobulated. You're watching this fight. Everything is moving very fast. If you're not sure which red mobile suit is which and which, like, it creates much more visual clarity to say, okay, Quattro is the gold mobile suit. Camille is the mostly white mobile suit. The grunts are black or gray or, you know, whatever. And same thing with the Nemo, it creates visual distinctiveness from the Mark II. Now that the Mark II is white, if we had a bunch of white gyms running around, it would be visually confusing. Mm -hmm. Instead, we have this sort of teal green Nemo running around, which no other mobile suits are that color. So you see that color flash by, you know it's a Nemo. You see red, you know it's probably Mara-Sai's because the Galbaldis are gone. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to churn mobile suits a bit faster in Zeta than we did in First Gundam for some reason. I can't imagine why. I think of the Mara-Sai's as a bit more like orangey or rust colored, but yeah, reddish. I mean... Shaquatro's suit was never really red either. It was like pinkish. True. His Rick Diaz was more red than his uh, mobile suits in First Gundam ever were. True. More than earlier in the season, perhaps they're trying to create additional visual distinctiveness so that the combats read a little more clearly and a little less confusing. They have definitely gotten better looking. A little bit of the uh, background lore on the Marasai. It was originally developed for a Yug. So when the Titans showed up at that Anaheim base and the Anaheim guys were like, here, free of charge, this mobile suit. That was a mobile suit that they had originally planned to give to a Yug. Because if you hadn't noticed already, they are absolutely playing both sides. And that's not a spoiler because Jamaican says it in the beginning of this episode. <laughs> and Jamaican doesn't seem particularly bothered by this idea. He treats it as natural. Like, of course, they want their bases covered regardless of who wins. The name Marasai is a Tomino innovation. No one knows what it means. He has never told anybody. However, the Marasai was originally going to have a different name. It was going to be called the Domingo. The name got changed because there was a car coming out at the same time as the show that was called the Domingo. Yeah. Yeah. We also get the introduction of the Mega Bazooka Launcher, <laughs> as big as a mobile suit. <laughs> it is a combination jetpack and bazooka. So I actually am not entirely certain why this is called a bazooka. The mega part of it in this context means that it is firing mega particles, which are a kind of like high energy version of Minovsky particles. Mm -hmm. So when somebody fires a mega particle cannon, they're firing mega particles and the mega bazooka launcher is firing those as well it's not firing shells the way say camille's mark ii bazooka or the gundam's hyper bazooka did it also has a little like kickstand thing that comes down <laughs> that quattro puts the foot of the hyakushiki into while he's firing it's an odd yeah, when it transforms from like flying machine into gun emplacement, couldn't you just hear the words sold separately? Yup. We get the first mobile armor of Zeta, but we don't see much of it. It zips past. We don't get a name for it. It's not in any of the memory banks. Neither Quattro nor Camille are able to hit it. 
it lands one hit on the temptation before taking off. But we do get to see its pilot, a purple-haired, very pretty man. He has kind of a pointy, weird face, I thought. Do you disagree with pretty? Do you assert that he is not pretty? I suppose pretty is the right word, because he has kind of a delicate face, delicate features, and long purple hair. Yeah, both him and Quattro doing a lot of panting. (laughs) A lot of heavy (laughs) breathing in their cockpits. So much pressure between the two of them. Yes. Very strong new type presence from this other pilot, apparently. Yeah. Camille seems earnestly upset, disappointed that he was not able to identify this mobile armor or hit it. And Astonaji kind of says, like, buck up, you know. Of course the Titans had projects that you weren't aware of. Mm-hmm. But it does make me worry that maybe Camille feels like he has to be perfect. He has to go above and beyond all the time or else he's going to find himself being punished again. Again, I had a different read. Not to say that yours is incorrect. It could very well be. Uh, I thought this was more of a natural. If you find yourself fighting something in the field that seems very strong, you really want to know what it is. (laughs) You really want to know as much about it as you can because you assume you'll be fighting it again sometime. I think this was natural combat readiness. A fair read. We shall see. Shrug. Now, you said you had one more thing to say about Quattro. Oh, I just find it very interesting that his whole deal in Zeta seems to be that he's like playing being the good soldier, right? Mm-hmm. Bright, I feel like must recognize him because he calls him Captain, although he does say Quattro. <laughs> or he's just feeling Captain-y vibes from him. Maybe. Uh, and has to be corrected. We get incredible deja vu when Emma runs off to talk to him because all of her complaints about attacking Jabro are exactly the same as his complaints to Wang Li about attacking Jabro. But having received the final orders, he's not going to argue with it anymore. He's not going to undermine readiness or morale or anything like that by being like, yeah, Emma, I, I actually agree with you, but we have to do this because we've been ordered. He's going to act like he's behind it 110%. This is what we're doing. This is what I believe in. Mm -hmm. Even when Emma is saying exactly what he said, like, (laughs) aren't we going to pollute the earth by attacking it? Wouldn't it make more sense to attack grips? I'm wondering, where did she hear that talk about polluting the earth? Because there's no way she heard that when she was a titan. Have Emma and Quattro been getting together to talk about revolutionary ideology? Or she's heard it from other people on the ship, or it's something that she's begun considering in the aftermath of her joining Ayug. They gave her some pamphlets when she joined. It wouldn't surprise me. We know they don't have an HR officer, but maybe they do have like a political information officer. When you said you had one more thing to say about Quattro, I thought you were going to bring up the Republic of Zeon, because he mentions them briefly during his discussion with Emma as a reason for why they need to bring this war to a close quickly. It's the one thing that he seems to actually have some conviction about and (laughs) actually personally feel. He's afraid that the Republic of Zeon, 
as distinct from the Xeon remnants, as distinct from Axis and Xeon's ghost and all those other people. Yeah, he's worried that the Republic of Xeon might side with the Titans. And I know what has happened to the Republic of Xeon is one of Nina's big questions. So I like to highlight it when it comes up. Well, this implies that they're still independent. Or somewhat independent. Self-governing in some way. That they are at least an independent power base. That they have a choice on who to ally themselves with. And that's consistent with everything that we've heard about the Federation's administration of space since the war as basically being hands off, give us your resources, we'll give you nothing, and we'll send the Titans out to brutally suppress any spacenoid independence movements. So of course, they would just leave the Republic of Xeon to its own devices as long as they toe the line and pay their taxes. And now the research section where we will discuss the real life city of Amman, language notes, and missile countermeasures. All the lunar cities that we have encountered so far in Gundam, Granada, Anaheim, and Amman are named for real cities on Earth. Granada is in the south of Spain, about 30 miles from the coast. Anaheim is in the south of California, near Los Angeles. And Amman is the capital of Jordan. Travel 10 miles west from Amman and you will reach the Dead Sea. Another 20 miles gets you to Jerusalem. And 30 more miles after that, you're standing with your feet in the Mediterranean. And although you probably don't realize it, 50 years ago, it was the scene for one of the most important events of the 20th century. We are still feeling the aftershocks today, and once you hear the story, I think you will agree with me that the events around the Titan's attack on Lunar Amman during UC-87 are suspiciously similar to what transpired in the real Amman, starting in 1967. So it was 1967, and the modern state of Israel had existed for around 20 years. And for those two decades, it had either been at war with, or on the verge of war with, all of its neighbors. Lebanon and Syria in the north, Jordan to the east, and Egypt to the southwest. Between the big wars, Israel also fought a ceaseless guerrilla war against the Fedayeen, Palestinian nationalists displaced during the formation of Israel and now operating from bases in those neighboring countries. They launched attacks against targets within territory occupied by Israel and Israeli commandos carried out cross-border raids to punish both the Palestinians and the countries within which they were living, for what Israel saw as complicity in those attacks. The details of this fighting, both attack and counterattack, remain hotly debated, but estimates for casualty figures run from around 400 to 1,000 civilians and soldiers on the Israeli side, and between 2,700 and 5,000 civilians and soldiers on the Palestinian and Arab side. The wheel of international politics continued to turn. Pan-Arabism, the idea that the Arab nations of the world should all stand together, flourished among the common people. Tensions rose, trade routes were blocked, and in spring 1967, with war in the air, Egypt formed defensive alliances with Syria and Jordan. Then, on June 5th, 1967, Israel launched a massive preemptive strike against Egyptian airfields. This one attack effectively eradicated the Egyptian Air Force, and over the following six days, Israel smashed the Egyptian, Syrian, and Jordanian ground forces, 
and seized the Gaza Strip, Golan Heights, West Bank, and Sinai Peninsula. But for our story today, the most important fallout from the Six-Day War, also known as the Third Arab-Israeli War, was that it convinced the Fedayeen, those Palestinian nationalists from before, that they could not rely on other Arab states. You see, they had long believed that the combined might of the Arab world would eventually, inevitably, overthrow Israel and establish a Palestinian state for them. But after the Six-Day War, this no longer seemed possible. And perhaps the Arab leaders who had lost the war so quickly and capitulated to Israel so readily simply could not be trusted. Disparate Fedayeen groups started to unify, their ideologies became clearer and more radical, and they started to think about what their next steps might be. In Jordan, two-thirds of the population was ethnically Palestinian. Egypt and Syria were pushing the Fedayeen out, but Jordan was becoming a place where they could gather, organize, train, and recruit. And the epicenter of this was the capital, Amman itself. The increasingly powerful Fedayeen began to exercise quasi-governmental authority over Palestinian refugee camps inside Amman, complete with their own uniformed soldiers and military checkpoints, independent of the Jordanian royal government. The city became a haven for the Fedayeen, still a bunch of disparate groups, but united by their opposition to Israel, the West, and imperialism. As the Arab world inched closer to a real settlement of their collective disputes with Israel, the Fedayeen became increasingly aggressive, determined to wreck that peace initiative. By 1970, Jordan's King Hussein was running out of patience with the Fedayeen. It was bad enough that they were taking over whole sections of his country and running around his capital city like they owned the place. But now the leftist wing of the Fedayeen had started talking about how all the Arab monarchs were obstacles to Arab union and liberation. They had started calling him and his government fascists. And that's not something you want to hear from a bunch of private armies controlling your capital. He had, by this point, tried practically every political solution. But things kept getting worse. And the army, the linchpin of his regime, was getting restless. And with good reason, because at this point the Fedayeen had started shooting at them, in a series of sporadic battles around the country. The international press was counting down the days to the fall of King Hussein's regime. Oh, and also the Fedayeen had thrice tried to assassinate him personally. On September 15th, 1970, King Hussein ordered the army to attack Amman. I have pieced together a narrative of the day-to-day -day events of the civil war in Jordan, from newspaper reports, personal accounts, and after-the-fact case studies by U.S. military analysts. This is all pretty high-level, and it's never going to get very gruesome, but it is still the story of a civil war consuming a modern city. If you would like to skip it, the narrative is 3 minutes and 20 seconds long, and it ends at the 54 minute 30 second mark. September 17th, two days after the order to attack has been given. A loyalist armored brigade converges on the city from different directions. Fedayeen forces open fire on army headquarters, and the army begins shelling Fedayeen strongholds inside Palestinian refugee camps. No one can agree who started shooting first. The Fedayeen, armed with artillery and tanks, fight back. Rockets and mortars fall on the city. Machine guns fire in the hills south of the city, and snipers fire from rooftops. 
The sound of explosions rings the city. Black smoke covers all of it. And tank against tank battles fill the streets. The loyalists are unable to make serious progress into Amman. September 18th, day two of the conflict. Fedayeen attempt to capture the U.S. Embassy in Amman, but they are repulsed. Loyalist forces secure the post office. There is no power in the city. September 19th, the army pulls back in Amman, catching their breath and offering the Fedayeen a chance to surrender. They refuse. The loyalists control the suburbs. The Fedayeen hold the old city. September 20th, a Syrian army division, 16,000 troops, dozens of artillery pieces, and hundreds of tanks, accompanied by Fedayeen forces operating from bases in Syria, invades Jordan from the north. They are blocked by an outnumbered Jordanian armored division, and against all odds, the Jordanians hold. In Amman, loyalist tanks command the streets but struggle to dislodge Fedayeen snipers. Infantry spray rooftops with bullets at random, hoping it's enough to keep the snipers at bay. Radio stations in the city play nothing but bagpipe music and coded orders. September 21st. The Syrians in the north of Jordan have entered a Fedayeen-controlled city and begun fortifying it. The Jordanians fall back. The Syrian foreign ministry denies that an invasion has occurred. September 22nd. Jordanian airstrikes slow and then halt the Syrian advance. Jordanian tanks have traveled all night to reinforce the beleaguered northern forces. When night falls, Syria begins to withdraw. In Amman, King Hussein declares another ceasefire. The Fedayeen ignore it. The streets are full of bodies. People are running out of food. The stores have all been shot up. Loyalists are reportedly breaking the fingers of anyone even faintly suspected of being a sniper, just in case. The Red Cross reports that there have been 10,000 casualties already. September 23rd. The Syrian invasion is over, but the brutal grinding battle in Amman continues. Jordan announces prices on the heads of Fedayeen leaders. The streets belong to Amman's cats, who don't seem to mind the shooting. September 24th. Fedayeen resistance in Amman is collapsing. 5,000 have surrendered, and the rest are pulling out of the city. September 25th. A real ceasefire now, agreed to by both sides, but sporadic fighting continues in the city and throughout the country. It will continue for another year, but the worst part of the fighting is done. The Civil War, dubbed Black September, is effectively over. But the legacy of Black September was a wound that would not heal, and in 1972, two years later, the Black September Organization, made up of extremist Fedayeen hungry for vengeance, murdered 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics. They pioneered a new type of organization, one that was composed of small, independent cells hidden in countries all over the world. And they had a new doctrine. In prior years, the Fedayeen had targeted government officials, soldiers, national infrastructure, and other elements of the state. Civilians would get caught in the crossfire, but they weren't the targets. Now the rules were different and the civilian population of a state was the state. They were as legitimate a target as any other. You can place the origin of modern terrorism and modern counterterrorism in many different places and at many different times, but there is a good argument that it dates back to the Six-Day War, and the line from there to the present day runs through the blasted wreckage of Amman that Black September. I can't definitively say that Tomino based Amman on Amman. To my knowledge, he's never said as much. 
But besides sharing a name, these are both colonial cities, Jordan having been part of the British Empire, that became safe havens and strongholds for foreign rebel groups, to the point where the rebel groups were able to amass weapons, conduct training, and even exercise control over the city without displacing the official government. Both cities were then attacked by loyalist military forces, mostly composed of and fighting on behalf of an ethnic minority. In Gundam, it's the Earthnoids and the Titans against the Spacenoids and Ayug. In Jordan, it was the Bedouins who made up the bulk of the royal army against the Palestinians and Fedayeen. Of course, there were Palestinians who fought for the royal army, just like there are Spacenoids in the Federation forces who fight alongside the Titans. And in both cases, the attack on the city opened with an artillery barrage followed by an armored invasion. The defenders were outgunned, but they put up an unexpectedly stiff resistance until they are finally forced to flee the city, to regroup elsewhere, and continue the struggle. Tomino would have been in his late 20s, working on storyboards for Astro Boy and just starting to direct episodes when Black September happened. I think it must have made quite an impression on him. There were three different words and phrases that we wanted to look into from this episode, and so here are our language notes. First, we have shusei, translated in the episode as correction, which is pretty much spot on. It's composed of two kanji, one that means discipline, conduct oneself well, study or master, and one that means correct, justice, or righteous. The dictionary lists the meaning of shusei as amendment, correction, revision, modification, or alteration, and so on. Which I suppose makes it a good euphemism, since there's no implied violence to the word itself. And that explains why when Emma says, Camille, if you don't straighten up, you're going to get another correction. And Camille is like, what? Do you mean by correction? Right. He doesn't understand what she means. It's also in air quotes. <laughs> Quote, unquote, <laughs> correction. Yeah. Term of art in the military, apparently, according to Emma. Several times in this episode, and I believe I've heard it in some other episodes as well, uh, the suffix ki is added to Camille's name. Someone says, kamiyu ki. Camille uses it himself when he takes off in the Mark II. Quattro uses it at least once in addressing Camille during the battle, and some other characters may use it as well. I think I remember Torres using it also. The fact that Camille uses it to refer to himself means that it can't be an honorific. You never use honorifics in reference to yourself unless you want to sound very arrogant. Or like a very, very small child, like a baby. Oh, to might, be cute. Yeah. Like refer to themselves in the third person. I thought it might be a reference to his rank aboard the Arkama, but could find no rank pronounced key on lists new or old for Army, Navy, or Air Force. Our best guess is that he was using the key that means machine or aircraft. It pops up in the kanji compound for airplane, as well as the names for various different types of fighter jets and military aircraft. It is also used as a counter for airplanes. In Japanese, different suffixes are added to numbers depending on what it is you're counting. So one plane is ikki, two planes is niki, and so on. So when Camille says something like, kamiyuki, ikimasu, <laughs> that could mean Camille's mobile suit taking off. And when Quattro says, kamiyuki, 
before giving him an order, it could be like using a call sign. We can't be positive none of the dictionaries we consulted or example sentences we saw used key as a suffix for a pilot's name, but it's our best guess. Finally, Tom wondered about Jamaican's comment to corpse captain, or, as it is translated in the episode, the only quality a good soldier really needs is to be able to shout loudly. Specifically, Tom wanted to know the precise meaning of the Japanese wording and if it has any particular connotations. And I was curious about this because it's one of those times in Zeta where someone says something that doesn't make sense in the context. Like they're talking about dealing with disloyalty within the Federation and the Sichuan and their plans. And then Jamaican says this. So I had an idea about that. <laughs> I'll get there. Uh I hadn't heard this exact phrasing before, but the compound word ogoe is a noun that means loud or large voice, as opposed to the way it's phrased in the dialogue, where oki is an adjective meaning big that modifies koe, a noun that means voice. In both cases, it means a loud or booming voice, a shout, or even just being loud. In one example, it was used to describe laughing out loud. Ogoe o dashite waratta. Ogoe dasu or ogoe o dasu are expressions that mean to raise one's voice or to shout. So there doesn't seem to be any special nuance to add to the translation, except insofar as this feels like an old self-deprecating military joke. I feel as though I've heard something similar in English, but applied to officers rather than soldiers generally. Uh, Jamaican also makes this comment after they've been discussing the situation with Anaheim Electronics, playing both sides. And he might be making a comment that the wider political issues are beyond the purview of common soldiers like them. Hmm. In this episode, we see Camille fire a weapon that creates a sort of sparkly field, which then causes premature detonation of the missiles fired from the Alexandria at Amman or at the mobile suits. It's unclear what they were originally targeting. So it's time to talk missile countermeasures and whether or not this sparkle defense is based on real technology. <laughs> the term active countermeasures is used to describe, well, active measures taken against an incoming missile, as opposed to passive measures, which are things like armor and camouflage. There are what's called soft kill and hard kill countermeasures. Hard kill countermeasures destroy the missile typically by hitting it with another projectile or otherwise physically affecting it to put it off course. We saw Amuro do this a lot to defend the white base and other targets in the first series. He shoots the missiles himself before they get too close to their targets. But while Camille's projectile does cause the enemy missiles to explode, he doesn't target them directly. Soft kill measures interfere with the incoming missile's guidance system, but guidance systems vary quite a lot. They can use infrared, lasers, radio waves, remote control, and, in one bizarre instance, pigeons. What? <laughs> yes. How many pigeons? One to three pigeons per missile. Uh, during World War II, behaviorist B.F. Skinner, who most of us know because of the eponymous Skinner Box and his research on behavior modification, headed what was called Project Pigeon, an attempt to create a pigeon-controlled guided bomb. It actually worked very similarly to early electronic guidance systems, but with 
you know, pigeons instead of a primitive computer program. The project was canceled in 1944, having never been used in combat, was revived in 1948, and then was canceled again in 1953 when electronic guidance systems were proven reliable. At least more reliable than pigeon-based. Now I'm imagining what the countermeasure would be against pigeons. Hot dog buns? Hawks. <laughs> Especially trained hawks. <laughs> <laughs> How did the pigeons work? Like, mechanically, what are they doing? So the pigeons have been trained to respond to whatever your target is visually. That they'll, If they see it on a screen, they're going to peck at it. They are in a little like chamber in the front of the missile, and in front of them are some lenses arranged in a row. One at the center, and then one on each side, or two on each side. And the pigeons will peck at whatever the target is, and their pecking on those lenses adjusts the direction of the missile. So if it's dead ahead, they'll be pecking in the center lens, and it will stay dead ahead. If it starts to move so that it is no longer centered, they will shift their pecking to one side or another, which will cause an adjustment in the, the controls of the missile and until it centers again. That is so much more reasonable than it sounds when someone <laughs> says pigeon-based guidance system. Right? Skinner was a little mad when it got canceled. Um, he really thought they could make it work. Electronic countermeasures do not work against pigeons. Minofsky particles do not interfere with pigeons. For infrared-guided missiles, a pilot uses flares as a countermeasure. The kind of flares they use burn very hot and typically ignite on contact with air. They also look really, really cool. <laughs> Some of the articles in the show notes will have pictures. Uh, to add to their effectiveness, the pilot will also try to reduce engine power as much as they can because that will lower the amount of heat coming off of the plane itself. But for radar-guided missiles, the most common countermeasure is chaff. A quantity of small pieces of metal or metallic coated paper, plastic, or other fibers, which are dropped by a plane, and they appear either as a cluster of targets on radar or just completely swamp the radar screen. It was developed independently in the UK, Germany, the United States, and Japan, all around the same time, and first saw use in World War II. While there are newer radar-guided missiles that can't be fooled by chaff alone, chaff is still widely used as a countermeasure. I imagine chaff could look quite sparkly in the right conditions, since it's metal-coated paper. Uh, so that checks out. And if missiles fired from the Alexandria were radar-guided, they could certainly lock onto the cloud of chaff as their target. But that doesn't explain why they detonate when they hit the chaff. So the final piece of the puzzle is what causes a missile to detonate. I had thought that for this kind of missile, it would be contact, physically hitting the target. But that is just one kind of fuse. There are several other kinds of fuse, including those that detonate on proximity to their target. This is especially common if the target is hard to hit, like a fighter jet or say a mobile suit, <laughs> or when trying to damage a larger area, shock waves of an explosion if, it do, if the explosion happens a, a bit above the ground, the shock waves will then bounce off the ground and those reflected shock waves will hit the original shock waves and they amplify each other. It's exponentially more destructive. 
How do proximity fuses know when they are close enough to their target? Well, it turns out this also has a lot of different mechanisms, including optical sensing, acoustic sensors, magnetic and pressure sensitive fuses, but the earliest ones used a small Doppler radar. I couldn't find an example of chaff setting off a proximity fuse, but given chaff's effects on radar generally, it doesn't seem that much of a stretch. It thinks the chaff is a target, it gets within a certain distance of that target, boom. And it makes sense in the universal century where you can't really rely on guided missiles that you would go for a proximity fuse on the off chance that your unguided missile or poorly guided missile got pretty close to its target. Yeah, I assume it's because mobile suits and other space targets are hard to hit. You wouldn't want to rely on being able to hit it right on. Next time on episode 2.12, The Karman Line, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 11 and The Secular World, Another Man from Jupiter, Odd Headband Placement. We've come a long way since the space poncho. Getting the band back together. Quattro's on the lookout for future orphans. A space noid's space noid. Young love and original bright slap. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, This episode fully redeems Wong Lee on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. I'm more out of it than usual today, I guess. Happy birthday. Thank you. This is what you get for turning Yep. Javelina, also known as the peccary or the skunk pig. Javelinas. Javelina. Like the Spanish pronunciation. I thought it was because you threw them at your enemies. That would be cool, but no. We're back to standing, both of us. There was a time when this was. We did this because it was necessary. This was the dark times. I'm actually paying for software. 
that I could just keep evaluating forever. I feel so legit. I feel like I have to like put more energy into my voice and like pitch it up a little bit. Yours has a tendency to become gravelly. <laughs> but not like, not like sexy gravelly. A little bit of it can be sexy, but when you're talking a lot, it, it feels like monotonous <laughs> rather than... Oh no! It's just like gravel, 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 gravel. Just sometimes. No, you're right. No, that's totally it's a, a thing. It's a thing <clears throat> I noticed when you were DMing more. His small mobile suit is also on the line. Atmospheric reentry. Yes, but it can also be used as a hoverboard once you're in atmosphere. <laughs> You've built me a mobile suit surfboard? Asanaji, you're the coolest. You're so radical and tubular. Far out, as they say. <laughs> Somebody else on the bridge, I think he's a comms officer, is like, oh, we should launch the mobile suit, sir. And he's like, I know that. <laughs> Don't tell me what to do. You don't order the mobile suits to launch. I order the mobile suits to launch. Now launch the mobile suits. <laughs> Why haven't you launched them already? Thirty to fifty feral pigeons. Earage. <laughs> How do explosions work? How do work explosions work in vacuum? In a vacuum. <laughs> I love that like half of our uh, next time moms are about that one dude. Oh yeah, so mysterious. 